Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, February 13th. We'll talk now about one of the defining issues of our time that leaves people of goodwill genuinely divided and has now divided the New York City Council Progressive Caucus. The issue is how to secure public safety, both from civilian criminals and from police brutality and mass incarceration at the same time. The police killing of Tyree Nichols has given the issue new urgency, as people see that even with the kinds of reforms enacted after the police murder of George Floyd, mostly body cams and extra training, this kind of thing is still happening. The wave of deaths on Rikers Island last year adds urgency too. On the other hand, the crime waves of the pandemic era leave most New Yorkers wanting more of a police presence, especially in the subways, according to multiple polls. We just heard that from our previous guest, Congressman Adriano Espaillat of Upper Manhattan and the Bronx, who says most of his constituents want an active police presence. But how does this affect the city council's progressive caucus? Well, the caucus did have 35 of the 51 members a majority and a veto-proof majority at that when it's in conflict with the mayor. But now comes a new statement of bylaws for the caucus that has caused nearly half of its members to quit, according to a headcount in the news site City and State. The main reason for this fracturing is language about police funding that says in part, quote, we will do everything we can to reduce the size and scope of the NYPD and the Department of Correction and prioritize and fund alternative safety infrastructure that truly invests in our communities, unquote. So public safety will be provided more effectively, it says, quote, by enacting policies that build a robust public health infrastructure to provide New Yorkers with mental health support, stable housing, violence prevention teams and tools, training and employment, and harm reduction for drug use. Another quote from the new City Council Progressive Caucus bylaws. And with me now is a City Council member who is still in the caucus and strongly supports the new bylaws. It's Council Member Tiffany Caban, who represents the Queens neighborhoods of Astoria, Woodside, East Elmhurst, and Jackson Heights. Rikers Island is in the district too. And she has an op-ed in city and state called Reduce the Size and Scope of the NYPD and Department of Correction, Public safety depends on it. Councilmember Caban, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. And we'll get to your arguments for your position and the vision that you have for how a less police New York leads to a safer New York. But to start on, on the news, the deadline, as I understand it, for caucus members to sign the bylaws and remain in the caucus was Friday. Was that the deadline? And of the 35 members you had a week ago. How many do you still have today? 
Yeah, so the deadline was Friday, but I think some some context is really important. This was a a long, you know, multi-month process that that we went through. So we did go from 35 members to, to 20, um, which I do think it's worth noting that, that that solid 20 that we have is bigger than the previous iteration of the Progressive Caucus we saw, um, you know, before the new council came in. And so this was a process that started months and months ago. We knew that the body was changing a ton. Most of the members in our current city council are first term members, everybody getting their their feet under them, their bearings about them. And at the beginning of this, uh, when we elected co-chairs for the Progressive Caucus, it was understood that there would be a democratic process that would take place to update both the bylaws and the statement of principle. So it was, you know, the natural ending to a very deliberate process. Um, I was part of the the bylaws committee along with a number of uh, members of of the caucus, and we we for months did these eight a.m. Uh, meetings to go, you know, bullet by bullet, section by section, word by word, um, and then ultimately when it was presented to the the caucus as a whole, we had discussion, debate around it, and it passed with with a supermajority. And I mentioned in the intro that multiple polls indicate large majorities of New Yorkers wanted more police in the subways. Now there is a flood of more police, according to the mayor and the MTA. But on the polls, for example, during the mayoral primary in 2021, an NBC Telemundo Marist poll found 77% of black Democrats said they wanted more police presence in the subways. And a Quinnipiac poll in April of last year found 86% of all New Yorkers wanted more police in the subways. 86% is, you know, so huge, it's going to cut across all kinds of demographic lines, too. So I guess the question is, are you representing your ideas for what would be best more than you're representing your constituents? No, and I and actually I love that you brought this up because I I definitely enjoy digging into to data here, right? Because those same polls also say that people want libraries, better schools, more housing. Um, and if you look at the structure, I think you can't look at a poll without looking at what questions get asked, how they're asked, and in relationship to what because there are other polls that ex- that exist that also tell a little bit of a different story. So I'm, I'm going to bounce around a, a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the by the mayor's own survey, one of the largest surveys our, our city has ever seen before policing, people said their highest priorities were housing, um, mental health response availability that didn't rely on police as their priorities over more policing uh, and more investment in, in Department of Corrections, for example. Can I, can I just ask before we take some calls, and as I'm sure yeah. you're not surprised, our lines are full. <laughs> how, how would your blueprint affect your district on the ground? Like how much would you cut police presence in your own district this year in the new budget if you were to get your way and the caucus got its way? Like how many officers do you have there now on a given day and how low would you go and how many other people would you have from other agencies in exchange? Yeah, so I just want to start by by addressing something you said a few moments ago. I, I would venture to say that it's not a fracturing, but a sharpening. What you are finding is that now we have a more honed, sharp instrument to move forward on an agenda that, again, largely is really, really focused on fighting against the mayor's cuts across agencies that deliver really, really critical services like that for first and foremost is what we are doing. And I love that you asked uh, about my district and specifically because we've been doing a ton of work 
around this. And so I'm able to talk about it with a, a bit of confidence. We've done a couple of things recently that give us a good data set to work off of. Um, we have a, you know, a, a public safety team, which includes our organizer, myself, and some um, volunteers, and we're partnering with our assembly members or Amandani's office, where we have done public safety canvassing with well over 50 small businesses in our community. In addition to that, we took our participatory budgeting process and took a model that's used across the, the, the world, but not, not here yet. Um, and we did what we what are called, there was known as citizens assemblies, and the focus was on public safety. And overwhelmingly, what people identified um, around what they needed to be safe was really clear. And it also laid out where the gaps in our neighborhood infrastructure are. You had business owners saying, the things that we're seeing every day are mental health, people experiencing mental health issues, causing um, you know, disruptions or things that concern us and maybe make us feel a little bit less safe, homelessness issues, um, and a dissatisfaction with how they're handled and what they want to see happen. So you know, from them, I've heard from our business owners that they want to be heard in our neighborhood. They want the pilot program that sends out mental health um, specialists to meet people where they're in need instead of, of police officers. They want that kind of infrastructure. They want homes for their, their homeless neighbors. Um, oftentimes they'll say, you know, if there's a situation, we take care of each other on our block. Uh, we don't necessarily want to call in police officers. Sometimes we have to because we need a, a to fill out for insurance purposes um, and things like that. But they really identified all of these different routes that they wish we had more resources for in our community. In these citizen assemblies, when people talked about the subway or walking around in the neighborhood, there was something that kept coming up over and over and over again on what would make them feel safer. And it wasn't police officers. It was um, creating an, a neighborhood that invited people to be outside a lot, that to have subways where the train, you didn't have to wait 20 minutes late at night to get the train. It came quickly. That would make them feel safer, better lighting, um, parks that are inviting so that they're really well used and you know your, your neighbors and those relationships. A lot of it boiled down to being able to congregate, knowing who was around you, being familiar with folks in the neighborhood um, and, and good lighting and, and things like that. Right. And those came as priorities um, that they said would improve their feelings of safety uh, much, much higher on the on the list mm -hmm. um, than than policing and, and incarceration. John in Queens, you're on WNYC with Queen City Council member Tiffany Caban. Hi, John. Hi, I would like to just ask Ms. Caban, um, how really I mean, I think we can all get on board with wanting more uh, social service workers for outreach to the homeless. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of situations where the situation just escalates very quickly, where you might sense someone who's not uh, trained or authorized to use force, and because um, you know, you're dealing with a mental health crisis, perhaps, uh, you know, suddenly, within a matter of seconds, um, that, that just becomes imminent. I, I love that you asked that. Um, I am a member of this organization called Local Progress. It's a, a national organization of pro, uh, progressive, you know, municipal electeds across the country, and I sit on um, their public safety committee. And so, as part of that, I have had the privilege of traveling to these other cities um, and seeing firsthand on the ground how they respond to their mental health crises. And you know, the, basically, their versions of be heard, but they're a little bit further along uh, and have a, a larger data set. So I've, I've been out to Denver to the STAR program, Portland Street Response Team, and I love the research on this. And then I want to talk to you about what police chiefs and fire chiefs in those areas told me about these programs. 
first of all, the data is really incredible. If you look at Denver Star that's been in operation for um, a couple, more than a couple of years now, they have gone on, I think, close to a thousand calls at this point. They have never up to this point had to call in um, police backup because it ended up being too dangerous of a, of a situation. And that's because it is a well put together program, right? It means everybody is working together. That dispatch is properly dispatching calls so that the appropriate worker is going at the appropriate times. Um, there's always a connection to the police uh, department. So even though they're not the ones meeting that person, there's always a quick line if it were to come to that. Portland Street response, very similar. I think they've had to call in the police for backup just a couple of times over several hundred different calls. And the beautiful thing about it too is that Another data point of these programs is that none of these um, responses by mental health uh, professionals has resulted in an arrest, right? So then you don't have all of the other things that come along with um, with a, a police interaction potentially. And we know that the, the responses are a bit different. You know, I, I talked to a police chief, a deputy police chief, and the fire commissioner out in Portland, and they said something that has been said across different places, and they were like. We don't want to do this work. In fact, we can't do this work. And it's a line that I now parrot a lot. Um, they said there's no substitute for a full-time mental health professional in these situations. We're not equipped to do it. There's no amount of supplemental training that could allow us to be equipped to it. It's just a different approach and, and set of knowledge. And I want to give one quick example. Um, they talked about this gentleman, and I, and I brought this up at a hearing recently where you know there were NYPD representatives there. And I said, well, let me give you a scenario. There's a person, um, appears to be experiencing a, a mental health episode. People call 911. They, they said that they saw this person putting rocks in their pocket, and they were concerned by it. And you know, right now, and because they had referenced the NYPD had referenced weapons, they go out to cause weapons. Um, and they had said, well, listen, you would probably think that this is where the police should come. Well, out in Portland, they did something different. The mental health responder said, no, 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 no. We wanna go out on this call. We don't find this to be to be threatening. Our job is to deescalate. And when they went out, they talked to that person and got them one by one to take a rock, to take a rock out of his pockets until there were none left, deescalating to the point where then they can engage and then hopefully connect to services. Whereas admittedly, the police department out in Portland said, and the NYPD agreed in this hearing, um, the police response would have been a lot different. They would have said, hey, that's a weapon. We go in, we, we subdue with force, we contain the threat. And so just thinking about how different workers approach different issues, it's really, really important. And it all connects to how do we get the best outcomes? Yeah, interesting uh, story from Portland there. Um, on the actual budget proposals from the mayor. I see in your op-ed in city and state that the mayor's proposed budget for the next fiscal year, which begins in July, includes what you call brutal cuts, like $50 million from homeless services, $200 million from health and mental hygiene, $300 million from the schools, $600 million from the Department of Social Services. But the New York Post had an article about the more conservative members of city council, Holden, Ariola, Borelli, were all named, criticizing Adams for cutting the police budget from $5.59 billion this year to $5.44 billion in the next. I guess that would be $150 million less for the NYPD as well. So is that your understanding? And why would you would you look at it as an across the board kind of cut rather than a shifting toward 
policing? So, I mean, the, the percentages don't compare. The police department is uh, being, having a proposed cut that is nominal at best compared to some of the cuts we're seeing across the, the board. Um, I know that you mentioned DHS, DOHMH, and some of those other agencies, but just to give you an idea where you're looking at the police cut is maybe, and my math might be a little bit off, but I think it's something a, a between one and 2%, if that, um, the oversight budget is looking at an almost 40% cut. And so that, I mean, that is not, you know, that's not equitable at all. And again, this is more about how do we get the best public health and public safety outcomes and leaning in to robustly funding the strategies that we know work better. Uh, and that's really, really got to be the, the, the focus here. Um, you know, it's really hard to function or say that we're going to house people or get people that continue to care um, when we're cutting by hundreds of millions of dollars in these really, really critical spaces. One more call. Audra in Crown Heights. You're on WNYC with Council Member Tiffany Caban. Hi, Audra. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, and thank you for your, for your work and also for bringing this very important um, issue to your forum. Um, I'd like to just remind everyone the very origin of policing in this country was um, a kind of, you know, obviously a spin-off of the overseers and the plantation system, which was originally designed to keep black and brown people under the thumb of their so-called, you know, owners as such. So we've already, you know, in its very nucleus, there's already a problem. Um, recent history shows that the police are ill-equipped, even in the most um, benign situations, to help their communities. They're, they're trained to kill. Let's be honest. They're trained to be afraid, and they're trained to react with um, explosive behavior. So the money is there. It's absolutely absurd to say that we can't support mental health. When have we ever invested in mental health in our communities, particularly communities that are the most um, abused by the system and the most attacked by the police. I live in New York City. I live in Crown Heights. I was a participant in the protests in 2020. When I saw NYPD turn against its constituents, the actual people who pay their salaries and act like complete untrained animals, literally beating people in the streets for asking for human rights. So the police are already set up to demean and demoralize the people who actually pay... And do you think... Let me let me just ask you, Audra, real quick. And the count, Well, actually, we're going to run out of time with the council yeah. member. So to I'm going to go back to her. <laughs> uh, yeah, council member, that. And uh, can you react to the news of today that because of incidents of violence in some public schools recently, the city is deploying more police officers yeah. to the public schools? Yeah. So uh, first, I want to thank Audrey for um, for what you shared with us and and connect it to, to something that is really, really important. What happens when you defund social safety nets, social services and the workforce that delivers those things is that you then create social ills in our communities. And to Audrey's point, where they're most felt are in black and brown, lower income communities. And so when those when you defund those things and you create those social ills in communities, then what happens is or what this administration is doing is taking those social ills and identifying them as criminal problems. Right. And responding to them with criminalization. 
And so austerity or, you know, the the leaning of the, the budget um, in that way goes hand in hand with and can't be separated uh, from from policing, because then what happens is you fill those gaps and then and then police come and respond to them. Don't interrupt, don't prevent, but respond to and then create a lot more violence in, in the aftermath. The New York City Progressive uh, City Council Progressive Caucus has lost 15 of its 35 members over how to do that. Tiffany Caban represents those who have stayed. Council member, we always appreciate it. Thank you very much for engaging. Thank you. Have a good one. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.